Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. I wanted to thank you all so much for taking the time out of your day to join us to discuss the year that was for commercial real estate. I think we can all definitely agree that at the start of the year, we did not think that this is how 2020 would be coming to an end. It's been quite the year to say the least. The plan today is to take a look back on the last 12 months and analyze the lessons we've learned, the different types of opportunities we have sought throughout the year and where we see value heading into 2021. The structure of today's conversation will be candid and forum-like, so I encourage you all to drop your questions into the Q&A box. I'll do my best to make sure your questions are answered throughout the call. But if we do miss anything, I will get back to you uh, via email with um, answers shortly after the webinar. In case we haven't met uh, before, my name is Bella Godfrey and I'm an associate on the investor relations team at Yield Street. It's such a pleasure to host this webinar today, and I'm hoping you'll reach out to the team and I anytime with any questions about today's webinar or deal open offerings on the platform or account maintenance questions via investments at yieldstreet.com. Be sure to visit our website, yieldstreet.com, to learn more about our open offerings and sign up to receive the latest updates on our webinars and market updates. We also have an app. You can download it from the Google Play or the Apple App Store. And finally, before we begin, if we're joined by any originators today, be sure to click through to the Raise Capital page or reach out to our originations team, originations at yieldstreet.com. I'm incredibly lucky to work alongside our guests every day, so I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to them. Some of you already may know Mitch Rosen. Mitch is the Senior Director, Head of Real Estate at Yield Street. Mitch joined the company in October 2018 after spending the previous five years at Brigade Capital, a $23 billion alternative asset manager where he led the firm's efforts in investing in real estate securities and debt instruments. Today, we're also joined by two other members of the commercial real estate team, Adil Hassan and Christoph Ban. Adil is a senior investment associate having joined Yield Street in 2019 after spending four years at JP Morgan underwriting and closing real estate debt transactions. And Christoph was an investment banking um, M&A analyst at JP Morgan uh, prior to joining Yield Street. He graduated from Harvard University with an AB Applied Mathematics in Computer Science and Economics team. Thanks so much for coming on today. How's everyone going? 
going great. Very excited. Excited to be here. Excited, yeah. Perfect. First, um, sorry, go ahead, Mitch. Didn't mean to cut off. First time, everyone. I wanted to say to everyone, you know, thanks for joining us as well. And I'm happy to introduce the valid members of the CRE team. And uh, this is the team that does most of the work all year long. And so happy to introduce everyone and get to know us better. Yeah, definitely. Amazing opportunity to have you guys all on the one call and to chat through yeah, what has been a very busy year for Yield Street Commercial Real Estate. Mitch, can you give us a brief overview of the deals that have been fully paid back and some of the new opportunities in the space that we've launched on the platform? Great. Yeah. So again, everyone, Mitch Rosen, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for being investors with us. The CRE Vertical appreciates uh, your attention and continued interest in the CRE business. I think before we delve into the deals that paid back and the deals we closed this year, I wanted to kind of talk to, I guess, you know, part of the title of this session, which is Lessons Learned uh, and Opportunities Sought. I've been doing real estate for about 20 years, primarily on the lending and investing side. And I think the one lesson that 2020 has certainly demonstrated is that you never quite know where that next dislocation or market disruption is going to come from. And what often happens is that you really, when the tide comes out, you really see who is set up for success and who may be exposed in very different facets. And I think one of the, uh, a few of the things I want to highlight in terms of lessons that we, I would say, learned from and, and were aware of is a couple of things. One is, is obviously utilizing leverage to amplify returns. We've been a very judicious user of leverage in, in our historical use in the real estate business. And we use it very prudently when we think that we have a really attractive investment opportunity that warrants maybe a lower yield. And with leverage, we can secure an additional yield, but not really take additional risk. We often use under 30% of leverage against our investment opportunities. And we often have a lot of protections in terms of if a loan defaults, or some dislocation happens, we have the ability to work through that loan for a period of time. I highlight that because a lot of the issues that, public issues, I should say, that a lot of the companies, investors, lenders have had in 2020 was when the market went down in March and April, there was a lot of leverage in the system. And the ability for these lenders, contemporaries of ours, to actually work through that was quite hard. And so leverage is basically a double-edged sword. In good times, it can be a great amplifier of yield. And in bad times, it can really expose maybe taking on too much risk in a deal. And so that is really key, I think, lesson that, that we knew about. And I would say 2020 certainly made us aware again. The second thing I would highlight is just the, the relative risk within certain asset classes within real estate. You think about typically from the least risky historically to the most risky, think about office and, and retail having long-term leases in place, 5, 10, 15-year leases, historically been fairly stable cash flow basis, and the riskiest being obviously hotel, which is a one-day lease. And I think what we've all seen is that COVID is such a unique disruptor of markets that it's hard to really provide a corollary to it, even to 08 or 2001, a dot-com crash. But I think what it highlights is just that that inherent risk of a hotel as an operating business, not just as a real estate investment, really shined through in a negative way and put a spotlight on that in, in 2020. And so while hotels have been decimated from a cash flow perspective, the prognosis looking forward for hotels we think is quite strong. And Chris, we'll talk to that later. On the flip side, retail has been an asset class that has been talked about for years. I remember talking about in 07, you know, who goes shopping at a mall anymore? However, here we are 13 years later, and there's still 1,200 malls in the U.S., and we have the largest number of square foot of sellable retail per individual of any country in the, in the world. And so 
while COVID may have been a spark that really accelerated the demise of a lot of these weaker retailers, particularly in the fashion space, this is really a trend that has been happening for the last 15 years. I would say COVID maybe accelerated that demise far quicker. But if it wasn't COVID, it may have been a recession. If it wasn't a recession, it may have been a dislocation in a geopolitical environment. And I think it certainly accelerated that time frame. But these are things that we were quite aware of in, in our investing parameters at Yield Street and really had very little to no retail exposure in the portfolio. And that was by design. With that, I'll talk quickly about some deals that have paid back. We're quite proud of the underwriting we do and the partners that we work with. We think they're top-notch and, and very straightforward, honest partners that we really value, as well as the borrowers we pick, right? Picking the right borrower in many ways is probably the first step to being a successful lender in CRE. And you know, we think with that we do our best to kind of get an understanding of who they are, how they operate, and, and their history. And you know, a lot of that risk can be mitigated up front by picking the ones you want to work with and the ones that you want to stay away from. Deals that paid back, I want to highlight a couple of them. I'll walk through all of them. Mile High Retail Financing, that was a retail deal that we did in outside Denver. Orlando Hotel Portfolio was a deal we got recently repaid back that it defaulted. We'll talk about more later. Uh, the National Retail Ph Pharmacy Portfolio, that paid back in 11 months. Irwindale, the industrial property in California, that defaulted as well and got repaid full principal plus interest. Uh, Ottawa will talk to that later. And Space City, that was a Houston multifamily transaction that paid back as well. North Florida Pre-Development, Salt Lake City Industrial, a senior care pre-development land. That was a land deal uh, in Jersey that was to be taken up by a construction loan. The bar paid us off. And then the deals we launched in, in 2020, certainly looking into when we kind of turned the calendar at the end of 19 into 20, we were quite optimistic in our ability to source attractive deals in excess of the amount we ended up doing. And I think that's by design, given COVID hitting and the market really seizing up that really is not the time to take big bets. It's, it's more of a time to be thoughtful and, and think through what we're doing. And, and cautious was the word of the day. And so while we maybe didn't hit the expectations of the investors in terms of the volume we did, I think the quality speaks for them and makes up for that. And so we did our Cleveland multifamily deal. That was uh, the bridge loan for a takeout of a construction deal. Chicago River North is the condo transaction, Brooklyn multifamily, Park Slope, North Florida pre-development, uh, preferred equity in Riverview, Tampa, Park City, single-family home, Greenwich Village, multifamily, which is going very well, D.C. hospitality, New York City Times Square Hotel, and then the uh, student housing portfolio. With that, I'll pass it back to Bella. Mitch, you mentioned in some of the deals that have paid back um, this year, a couple of them did pay back after defaulting. And congratulations to the CRA team and everyone involved for, you know, successfully resolving those, those loans and, you know, returning the capital to investors plus the interest owed. I think a great outcome. It's a nice segue into what I was hoping Idle would chat through with us. As a result of the pandemic, obviously some of these loans have um, had to have been modified to, you know, suit the, the conditions of the market at the time. Can you share some of the details of the modification process and how we've been able to successfully modify loans and then achieve a desired result at the end for investors? Yeah, thank you, Bella. I'm uh, really happy to be here and interacting with our investors. You know, given the pandemic, real estate industry in general faced a really challenging time. And the investments that Yield Street made also faced their fair share of challenges. We had to work through with the borrowers, either in terms of loan modification or forbearance or default. 
one thing I do want to stress on is that a default doesn't necessarily mean a loss. As I will highlight, based on the three successful deals that have been paid off, we worked through the issues, we worked with the borrower, and even in the two Orlando Hotel Portfolio and Irvingdale, where a default was called, we were able to collect all our principal and accrued uh, interest. You know, we take a very, as Mitch mentioned earlier, we take a pretty conservative approach in terms of how we underwrite this. Uh, given this is a private debt transaction, they carry a certain level of risk. But we always try and think about a downside scenario. You know, look at the market rents, ability to convert to alternative uses, timing and the ability to retenant the building, and what happens to the property assuming it's uh, vacant. With that, we are working on a few deals that are with the borrower that are uh, facing challenges, but I do want to highlight these three that have been successful in terms of loan modification, forbearance. And so the first one I'll touch on is the mile-high retail financing. This was a deal that was launched in July of 2019, $5 million investment by Yield Street in a $7 million first mortgage loan. It was originated by Yield Street and secured by a retail property, anchored by a full-service health and fitness club in uh, Aurora, Colorado. As you know, due to COVID, the tenant was forced to shut down and the borrower was not able to secure a takeout financing at a lower rate. We worked with the borrower along with uh, iBorrow and we executed a loan modification and forbearance agreement to extend the loan by six months. We funded the full interest payment due under the loan for the next six months and capped all operating cash flows that came from the property. And given the result of us working with the borrower, the borrower was able to raise the capital to pay off the loan in October and October of 2020. With regards to the Orlando Hotel portfolio, this was launched in January of 2019. It was an $8.8 million investment by Yield Street in a $10.6 million loan originated by Avatar. This was secured by two limited service hotels in uh, near Orlando, Florida. And again, due to COVID, the borrower was forced to shut down both hotels and uh, they were not able to make the interest payments starting April 1st. We tried to work with the borrower along with Avatar, but a resolution could not be reached, and we called a default. You know, looking back, our investment thesis was that there is value in this property, given that this could be converted to multifamily use in case the hotel did not perform as expected. And that sort of thesis held true, and the borrower was able to find a buyer for one of the hotels, who plans to convert it to multifamily. And uh, that sale paid off our loan principal and the accrued interest in full. I'll jump to the third one. It's the Irvindale Industrial Property. This was launched in January of 2020. It was a $5.2 million Yield Street investment in a $9 million first mortgage loan. Again, originated by Avatar and secured by an industrial property in Irvindale, California. Mitch earlier mentioned about how we are very uh, thoughtful about taking on leverage. We secured a $2 million leverage on this piece, and there was a $400,000 of second mortgage debt behind us. So it was a very small portion of our loan amount. And as I'll mention, that, uh, that helped us keep the loan current because as the loan defaulted, the borrower failed to make payments, and the, and the lender provided a notice to the second mortgage holder of the obligation to fund the interest, which they did. We continued to keep the uh, senior leverage current. We reached out to national brokers to assess the value of the market, uh, value of the note, 
and we were able to successfully sell the note to a third-party buyer returning full principal and interest. And uh, with that, I'll pass it back to Bella. Thanks, Adil. Definitely a true testament to the care and diligence that the CRE team takes working to ensure that the best possible outcome is achieved for investors if things don't go exactly to plan. I liked how you highlighted that your default at the time is, is a scary thought for investors, but it doesn't always necessarily mean a complete loss. And the Old Street team has experience resolving these defaults and we, we do do everything in our power to, to right the situation for investors. And there are three great examples of the work that your team and the portfolio management team has done this year. If I yeah. just add it for a sec. So uh, I just want to touch on that. I'll good job of, of walking through those. I, I think another point I would just want to add is that, you know, we are, we are in the, in the vast majority of the deals that we've done. We have a partner with us, right? Whether it be avatar, I borrow, you know, all of the folks that we've done business with, you know, we're able to leverage all their infrastructure to help work through these loans, which is really advantageous for us. They have servicing departments. We also have external servicers. We have boots on the ground when needed. And what is unique about all of these deals is they really defaulted for different reasons, right? In the case of the Irwindale Industrial Property, that was actually a operating business that was headquartered in that property that actually was cash flowing. It was a function of the borrower just not performing and not willing to speak with us in any meaningful way. And although we attempted to resolve it with him directly, it went to no avail. And so we decided to sell the loan. Uh, a buyer purchased it at par plus accrued, and we exited the position. The actual underlying real estate was performing quite well, and Irwindale is probably one of the top industrial markets in the country. And so we were always quite confident of our exit strategy there. You contrast that with the Orlando hotel portfolio. The hotels were shut for a period of time. Cash flow dropped substantially, and it was less clear to us, while we thought there was value there, how we were going to be able to monetize and, and exit that position. Another thing I want to highlight about that specific deal is that it's always nice and ideal when you have cash equity from your, your borrower in the transaction, right? Value on paper is great on LTV basis, but cash equity has a different type of motivating factor with your borrower. In the case of Orlando, the sponsor had $6 million of cash equity in the deal, approximately. And that was a combination of his own money and other investors. And so he was highly motivated to find a way to recoup his capital and pay us off. And that's what he did. He sold the property to a multifamily developer for over $15 million, I believe, or whatever the number was, and paid us off. And now he owns another property free and clear. So those are two very distinct examples of one was a performing asset with a borrower who could get out of his own way. And the second one was actually an asset that had shut down with no cash flow and still found a way to get us out. And so just very divergent outcomes excuse me, right? very divergent situations with the same outcome. And so there's no real easy path or standard path for how these resolve, but the way in which they did resolve still results in our investors getting their money back with their interest, which is great. Thanks for that added color, Mitch. Definitely very helpful. We'll pivot the conversation now and move from 2020 to 2021. Christoph, could you tell us about the new asset classes within CRE that you're looking into as future opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. And echoing idle sentiments, nice to be able to um, choose myself to, to focus on the webinar. I think one segment that we're quite excited about is that of lodging and hotels. So it's absolutely not 
news to anybody that 2020 has been exceptionally difficult for hotels. It's been made worse by government response, testing, consumer confidence, and especially now with businesses moving out, coming back to, to offices and you know, the political landscape that we're in. Nobody's really expecting a full recovery of hotel revenues until perhaps 2024. But taking that into account, we are bullish on the sector because we are seeing we are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. So with vaccines on the horizon, we do believe that there's been no fundamental change to people's people and humans' desire to travel. We also think that while you know, the future of the office is, is questionable, business trips are probably going to come back. Humans are at, at their core social animals, and especially with more remote working, demographic shifts into the urban areas, um, the, the want and the desire for business travel and the need for business travel is likely still going to be there and all the benefits of hotels. So what does this all really mean for us then? Hotels have had a, a tough time. Hotels generally have tried to slash their variable costs, but even doing as much as they can, the cash, the cash burn is uh, has taken a toll to hotels' bottom line. State and federal back support has so far shielded a lot of the industry from the full force of COVID, but these measures aren't likely to stay until all the way until full recovery. So these are pains that are going to be felt by the, by the industry, most acutely by small operators, undiversified owners, those without significant working capital reserves or credit lines. So now as we're looking into reopening, it's going to be interesting. Like capital investments, for a start, for a start capital investments like to be needed for upgrades. There's probably going to be more of a, uh, an emphasis on health and safety. Some owners are going to reconsider. Some, some owners will reconsider reopening. Some, some will close the asset, sell them off. Some will repurpose their asset. In 2020, what we've seen was that investors have been interested in well-located assets, which have historically had strong, consistent demand. So we think those, those assets are going to be fine. And we've seen interest in that, albeit at larger discounts than what owners have wanted to sell them for. So going into 2021, we think this, this bid-off spread, so to speak, is going to narrow, and we're looking forward to some interesting opportunities that we can hopefully share with folks on the webinar. So with that, that's one thing that, we're looking, that we have to look forward to. Pass this back to you, Bella. And I would add quickly, Bella, just to, to that point, while we are certainly very eager and, and excited about what may shake off the tree in hotels, by no means are we projecting a, a recovery in the next six months, even 12 months. The key here is to find assets at well below replacement cost with deep-pocketed sponsors who are looking to put additional capital to support their assets that are well-located and that have historically performed really well. There, are just, there probably are too many hotel rooms in various markets. And with the demand where it had been pre-COVID, even the worst assets had been able to charge a high enough ADR to make considerable income, we think that will be normalized and that the better assets and the better quality of finishes and the better flags will, will rise up. And those that really got by the benefit of demand lifting all pricing will go away. And this is going to take years. This is not going to be a six, 12 month, 18 month timeframe. We think this is going to be a couple of years, but we're going to try to position ourselves to look at those investment opportunities where we can basically lend against, call it 50%, 60% of replacement cost and get paid a very nice, healthy return profile in those situations. And while there's certainly not been an abundance of them quite yet, we do think looking forward that those will come to shake out. And as people have more confidence, confidence is the key here with CRE. 
there's been a lack of confidence, a lack of clarity on where value is going. I would argue with office, it's still going to be quite clouded and hotel to a large degree as well. But if you can find the right borrower in the right market with the right asset at a very low basis, there, there is a floor to be had with upside. And that's really the key of what we're trying to find a, to shake out here. So Mitch, you mentioned right markets. A lot of investors have been writing in about a location of assets that we're choosing. What, where do you see us focusing in terms of geographics uh, in 2021? Yeah, there's, so I see a bunch of questions here. So let me take the one that from a listener about hotels in 21 and hotel opportunities, consistent demand generators. So certainly all hotel markets have a mix of what, what you'd call a group travel, leisure travel, and business travel. Those are the three kind of main drivers of hotel demand. And you know what may be a very attractive business hotel during the week really suffers on the weekends and therefore has to cut ADR and try to solicit you know, that leisure demand that maybe not drives the weekday demand. There are other hotels that are really catered to convention centers, right? And are massive four or 500 key hotels in Florida and other major cities that really are adjacent to a convention center and really drive their revenue, right? And group business, maybe it's weddings, maybe it's you know what they call smart business, like church groups and little league teams that travel for tournaments and whatnot. So I think that you certainly don't want to be in a hotel market where you're dependent on only one of those three. And ideally, you'd want to have two of those three to really help stabilize the eventual cash flow recovery looking forward 12, 18, 24 months. I think everyone can agree to some level that conventions don't go away forever. People are going to want to travel back for leisure, whether it be to see different cities or go to the beach or whatever it may be with their families and friends. And the business travel will come back in some form. I don't personally feel, maybe others have a different view, that we will continue to only do virtual meetings. I think the, the, like to Christoph's point about we are social animals, the interaction of people is really key, not just for a happiness level, but also for business. I think there is something to be said for breaking bread with a client or potential client, getting on a personal level to know them better, to try to create trust in that relationship. And so I think what we would highlight on the hotel side is looking for assets that can then can draw all three of those demand generators that also showed really demonstrable historical performance. And unless we think there's a, a major demographic shift, why that prior performance is not going to be achievable in at least a three to four year time frame, we probably would pass. And so do I think the question silly says, do I think it's the savings to invest in business travel? I wouldn't put all my eggs in one of those three buckets. You'd want a, a, a mix of all of them. You know, maybe it's counterintuitive, but one could argue that, you know, Caribbean hotels, leisure hotels, maybe the first to come back because people have been so cooped up for the last 12 months. Now, is that going to be sustainable over the next two years? I don't know. But one could argue that hotels that cater to business and leisure could perform better than, say, business at convention centers, which may be people hesitant to travel right now. So a lot more to come on, on how we decipher all that. But uh, that's something that we're definitely cognizant of when you think about the hotel sector specifically. Another question came in, about commercial warehouse. We didn't touch on it specifically here. It goes without saying uh, industrial is probably the most attractive CRE type right now. Uh, do you want to touch on, on why that is? And I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but maybe talk about the industrial. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. sure. You know, I think people are staying at home right now and there has been a big increase in people shopping online. Uh, you see any direct-to-consumer platform, they're performing really well. And all these companies, the Amazons of the world, they need a place where they can store all the inventory and easily distribute it to all the customers. 
So it goes without saying that all these logistic industrial properties will perform really well. They have been, they have performed well over the pandemic. And uh, we believe that trend is going to continue in the future. It is about finding the right market and the right basis at which we invest in these deals. And we sort of look forward to uh, finding more of these opportunities going forward. We got a couple other questions I want to touch on real quick. What is the outlook for office and multifamily in major cities? It's a great question. I'll touch on a multifamily first. Even within New York, one could, you know, while there was a, a quote unquote exodus, if you will, that people were concerned about, there has reached a floor of rents where people who considered Brooklyn, Queens, maybe New Jersey, Jersey City, or other markets, the rent had gotten so low that we have colleagues at Yield Street and I have friends who actually have started moving back into the city because the deals got so attractive. I personally think, and maybe Otto and Christoph can echo this, they both live in Manhattan, I don't. There is still something very special about New York and, and, and most cities that people really gravitate to, that whole, the restaurants, the bars, the cultural aspects, the energy that you just don't find in other locales. Now, right now, that certainly is muted and not really something that people are thinking about, but that will come back. I mean, there's no doubt it will. And I, and I think we wholeheartedly agree with that. So right now, do I love and are we plowing full steam ahead in major city multifamily? For the right deal, we certainly would, yes. But a lot of the deals we're looking at are more suburban guard-style projects, which are outside of the major cities. And so there are good deals to be done in both areas, but I don't think that the, I would definitely not call for the death knell to multifamily high-rise in big cities. I don't, so I don't think that's happening. I think rents will be reset lower and, and valuations may go down. But I do think that at some point, people really still value those assets and living in those cities. So I'll, I'll answer one more question about that, about um, the outlook for micro units and co-living. It's a really great question. We actually do have, um, we closed our, our first co-living deal in uh, county year 2020 for a brand new constructed asset in, in West Hollywood. I do think, and I think I'll let Christoph and Otto maybe give their view as well here, co-living does have a, a space in the multifamily, primarily urban market. When you can think about a turnkey solution with a fully furnished kitchen, living room, TV, amenities, whether it be a gym, biking, bike storage, a roof deck, at a price point that maybe is 35% lower than getting your own unit, not dealing with a broker, a very easy move. There is value to that, particularly people who are traveling or moving to a new city. And so when you think about younger demographic who might be traveling or moving more, co-living has a real attractive component to it. Now, right now, clearly, you don't want to be in a unit shared with four or five other people just due to concerns. But I don't think by any means this spells the end or the demise of co-living. I, I think it has a real legs to it and that it will evolve and, and thrive. But I think the time frame is going to be longer. And unfortunately, a lot of the smaller players that entered the space the last couple of years have kind of gone away or merged. And so, Otto, Crystal, anything you want to add there? I just add that, you know, if somebody is living, what we have learned from investing in our first deal is it's really a trade-off between living in a newly constructed building with great amenities versus living in a studio in a class B, class B asset in a not so great location. So I think, you know, people, especially younger people under 30, 35, this is a good trade-off for them. Uh, they choose to live in co-living and prefer that over a smaller studio in a class B. So definitely agree with Mitch that co-living is there to stay. I think anecdotally also we see, we know and see folks who are willing to 
cram multiple people into a small multifamily, essentially attempting to make what is one of these micro unit or co-living solutions. So I think it's, it seems to be like a natural evolution of, of a new product that's going to stay. All right, one more quick note that we'll go on the next slide. You know, a lot has been talked about the single family rental space, right? Guys like Invitation Homes, you know, American Home for Rent. These businesses have really thrived in, in COVID, right? The ability for someone who maybe was in the city and wanted to get out due to the, uh, the pandemic. They wanted a backyard. They wanted their own kitchen. They wanted space with their neighbors. They wanted maybe concern about safety and health issues. I think that asset class really has, has a meaningful demand side. And affordability of single-family homes has gone harder. And so you may find a bigger component of people who are permanent renters that maybe before you may not have thought would have been the case. Multifamily rental has always been in demand. I think the single-family home rental is really a new phenomenon the last 10 years or so. And I think my view historically when I looked at this space 10 years ago was that the ability to effectively manage expenses with 50 different homes, 50 different roofs, 50 different boilers, 50 different AC units was a big risk profile. And I think what they've proven is that they've been able to manage that pretty well by geographically focusing on certain areas and managing them as efficiently as they can in that manner. And so, although we're not t talking silly about SFR in this webinar, it is a sector that we are constructive on and we'll look to find ways to provide opportunities for our investors to invest in that sector. And so I would say stay tuned. We may have a first deal that will close uh, in January on that sector, but uh, more to come. Thanks, Mitch. And there's uh, one other question that an investor dropped in that actually leads quite nicely into our next slide. The investor asked about different types of opportunity, like different types of real estate products in our pipeline, and specifically asked to know if we had any equity deals coming up. Ardell, do you care to um, just chat through what we see going forward and whether it's like more, more debt focused, equity focused, preferred equity? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into the next section. Yeah, we're really excited. We are always trying to come up with new products for our investor base. First one, I think we touched on it a little bit with Mitch and Christoph. It's going to be the distressed and special situation loan opportunities. We all know that uh, real estate has been stressed this year, where the existing owner might be rescue financing or a new owner, new buyer might be buying at a very attractive basis. So these are situations where we can provide a low leverage loan and get a very attractive pricing on these loans. And we're very excited to these opportunities as we go into Q1 and Q2 of this year. And going back to your questions, you know, till date, we have offered our investors first mortgage, mezzanine loans, and rest equity. And the natural next segment is equity. And uh, we are very excited to announce that we have uh, circled our first equity deal and we are working towards closing this. Otto, Otto, real quick, we got a question about that with regards to, are we considering 1031 investment opportunities for investors to roll out of an existing real estate ownership into a YS equity arrangement fund or property share otherwise structured? It's something that, uh, I'll answer this live, we are talking about it. I certainly would say that it's not going to be the first foray into that, into that space. It's a very unique space. There's certain requirements you have to have to be a 1031 manager of how to actually accept that capital and to distribute it. I, I think for now, we're going to start with the pure LP equity model with established GPs with track records, vetting their partners, vetting the vetting brokers they've worked with, vetting the bankers that have lent to them, and really just picking on the safer spectrum, you know, cash flowing and or near cash flowing assets and gauging demand and seeing how those go. We are very excited about it. 
it's something that's probably been a long time coming. And, uh, you know, we are, we hope to have that out soon. Yeah. The next thing I'll touch on is that's always, always been our intent to provide diversification for the, for our investors. Uh, right now you typically invest in a single deal. The next foray is we are thinking about a fund, both third party managed and a yield street managed fund. So in the yield street managed funds, uh, you will see similar deals that you have seen on our platform till date. In terms of our third party fund, we are really targeting uh, originators who have an extensive track record, ideally a specific niche in a CRE sector, for instance, healthcare or medical office, something like that. Still, we are speaking to a lot of people and hope to be able to accomplish this over the first half of next year. Now I'll pass it back to Bella. Thanks, Adil. So definitely full steam ahead into 2021. It looks like we're all going to be pretty busy, potentially new segments, new products. Niche 2020 was definitely a roller coaster of a year. And from what the team has told us, 2021 is going to be exciting. From your perspective, what are some things that investors should be aware of and on the lookout for in the new year? All right. So I, I think we kind of talked about some lessons learned. We talked through um, some of the loans that we were, were successful in working out. We have some loans as we speak that we're obviously working through as well and, and are optimistic about. But what really, I think, when you think about opportunities, so we talked about hotels, we talked about the new equity opportunities that we're looking for and, and, and seeking out. But I think at the end of the day, what really came, it comes down to is really picking good partners, good located assets, and ensuring that the leverage and the basis at which you're willing to commit capital against that asset has a downside protection and is priced and structured correctly. And I think that's what we try to optimize for on the Siri team all the time. And we, when we think about that, we think about, like, for example, the, what, what location are we looking for? So we think about the top 35 MSAs, which stand for Metropolitan Statistical Areas, right? The biggest major areas in the country, New York, Chicago, D.C., Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Park City, Phoenix, you know, the major cities that people typically think about where there's demographic trends that are positive, people moving to maybe lower tax states, maybe there's a transit industry, whether it be technology or financial jobs being moved there. But essentially, you know, those are the kind of places that you want to be a investor in. And, and, you know, that's not lost on us. With that being said, we have done deals in markets that are not part of the top 35 MSA markets, but there's a reason why we did that, those deals. So for example, we invested in an office as a, as a lender on an office property in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 2018. And then one would say, well, Santa Fe is not really that big a market, not very liquid, not very deep. In that case, it was unique because we had a signed lease from a government tenant for about five, seven years. And so our view was that there's probably no better credit than a, than a, than a government entity. And we had significant sponsor equity behind us. And so while we may not necessarily seek out a lot of opportunities in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for the right deal with the right borrower and the right profile, we certainly would pursue those. And so I don't want to limit our location by just the top 35 markets. There are plenty of bad deals in good markets. It's really the better deals in any market. And that's really what we, what we try to solve for. In terms of what are we also looking out for, I think for the foreseeable future, retail will probably be an asset class that we'll be highly, highly skeptical of and cautious on. Service-oriented businesses or neighborhood shopping centers that really cater to a, a local area Think of hair salons, nail salons, restaurants, bars, 
grocery stores, dry cleaners, things that are not really, um, I say, Amazon proof to some degree. Those are the kind of businesses that we think will come back and have an ability to thrive, maybe at lower rents and a lower basis. Or probably avoiding more so is big box retail. Think of like the Burlington of the world, Bed Bath Beyond, Bye Bye Baby. Those are really quite exposed to online shopping and apparel. People, the, the shopping experience at most retailers is quite bad. Customer service, long lines, friction time, parking. It's just not an enjoyable experience for most folks, including myself. And so we'll be very picky about you know what we look to do in retail and what we look to pass on. Industrial, frankly, we're really, pricing has gotten so tight and competitive that there really is not a, an efficient way for us to deploy capital, whether it be debt and or equity, into the industrial space that we think can be at yield that are attracted to our investor base. We'll certainly keep trying, but it, it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy place to find opportunities. I know we're, we're pressed for time. I think to end it, you know, we'll just say that we, we've learned a lot in 2020. People have really suffered. We're very empathetic with what has happened. And um, when we walk in every day on this team and, and at this company, we think about protecting our investors' capital and doing the right by them. And so that drives me, that drives the CRE team, that drives Yield Street. And we continue to look for good opportunities to make investors earn attract a return of their capital and, and, a, and a return. And so that's, that's the goal here. Thank you to all three of you uh, for joining us today. We have unfortunately run out of time. There are a couple of questions that we didn't get to, so I will send all those investors an email with their um, an appropriate response in due course. But like I said at the beginning, please visit yieldstreet.com to view our open offerings. And if you are an originator, please work through the Raise Capital page to get in touch with the originations team. And stay tuned as we do release um, content on a regular basis. This is our last webinar for the year before the holidays. So wishing everyone a very happy holidays. We hope you stay safe and healthy and we look forward to seeing you in 2021. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.